Welcome to the 2019 Annual Lecture for Connect. Just before we begin, I've got a few thank yous to say. First, thanks to the staff team for arranging this event, doing an excellent job as they do every year. Um, secondly, thank you to our sponsors who sponsored the whole event, Liberty Speciality Markets. And thank you to Dundee City Council for sponsoring our speaker today. I'm also under strict instructions to tell you about the hashtag if you're going to be doing any tweeting tonight which is up here, and it's HashConnectAL19. Um, my name's Lindsay Law. I'm the convener from Connect. Um, this is all you're going to hear from me tonight. I'm sure you'll be glad to know. And I am not going to give very much introduction to our brilliant speaker, Carol Craig. I'm going to hand over to her um, for her to introduce herself. And welcome to the lectern. Thank you very much. I, um, I know every speaker says it, but I'm really delighted to be here. And I think you'll, you'll understand why as I speak, because I've been thinking about parents in Scotland quite a lot for the last couple of years. Uh, and I'm really interested to get your reaction to what I'm saying. But there's a couple of health warnings. One is I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychoanalyst. I'm not a teacher. I'm not any of these things. I see myself as a generalist, uh, a parent, a grandparent, uh, someone who reads a lot. I've read a lot of psychology. I've worked over the years as a trainer with lots of teachers. Um, and I've just blended a lot of this together into some ideas. And they are quite speculative. So I'm not saying this is definitively the case. I'm saying this is how I see it at the moment. But I also change my mind quite a lot. So if you met me in a year's time, I might have changed my mind a wee bit. But anyway, I'm going to give you my view at the moment. Um, I've been for quite a while now particularly interested in culture. Um, in, in other words, how history, um, and history uh, beliefs and values and so on shape our behaviour, not just as individuals, but the people around about us. And that's often why we're not even aware of it, because it's just like we're living in this milieu and we're not even aware that we're being influenced, but we are. Um, okay, is that better? Um, I think the one bit of information that maybe you should know is that I set up the Centre for Confidence and Wellbeing, which sounds a very grandiose organisation, but it really is a woman and a dog. Uh, working from home. <laughs> At one point we had an office and we did have funding from the Scottish Government, but that was quite a while ago now. Uh, we've got a big website, mostly historic material, and we've got a book series called Postcards from Scotland. So we do quite a lot given the fact that we're a wee organisation and we are completely independent. We get funding from nowhere. Uh, we make some money in books. I work for nothing. And so that actually gives us an incredible advantage, I think, in being able to say whatever we like without looking over our shoulder, thinking, are we offending the Scottish government or whoever? Um, so I think that's, that is an advantage. Right, let, let me start then. Um, I'm going to talk learning to cope, how do children become resilient? Now, my first slide is kind of an unusual one to start with. Uh, this is um, the night of the Clydebank Blitz, which coincidentally was the 14th of March, 1941. 
I mean, I just couldn't believe it last night when I was, I was just checking that. I thought I should get the date of that. And this isn't actually Clyde Bank. It's Mary Hill. And it's a street called Colmon Street, where my father grew up. And the night of the Clyde Bank Blitz, Mary Hill, Colmon Street, was hit really badly. And the other side of the street where my grandparents lived was completely razed to the ground by bombs uh, and destroyed. And about 100 people died. And you can imagine how terrible that would have been for, for my grandparents and um, my father and his siblings. But, you know, the next morning, they all got up and they went to their work. Can, can you imagine that these days? That people would just get on with it, even though your neighbours across the road have been you know, killed in a terrible blast, you still feel it's your job to soldier on. And that, I think, is partly that during the war, people saw things in a different way. There was a sense of meaning and purpose. There was an expectation that bad things would happen. Whatever. That's what I'm talking about. Culture can change the way that we see things. So I just want you to bear that in mind um, when I'm talking about resilience. So if I go on and say, you know, how am I going to define resilience? Because I'm going to be talking about it quite a lot. And I'm just simply defining it as the ability to bounce back after adversity. It's about coping with failures, setbacks, criticism, conflict. You know, it's about coping with negative emotions to some extent, bad things that happen. And you can see that right around the world, people today are coping with a lot of bad stuff. I mean, we see it in the news all the time. Um, Syria, you know, conflicts and so on. And yet a lot of people still manage to survive that emotionally. And that is because human beings have to be naturally resilient. If we weren't, we wouldn't have survived as a species. We have to be able to deal with bad stuff happening and get on with our lives and bring up our children and do these things um, as I say, or we wouldn't have survived as, a, as a, a species. But it does seem to be on the decline. And a number of people observed that in 2014 when there was a Somerset levels flooding. And I remember quite a few people saying that the older people seemed to be taking it in their stride in a funny way rather than the younger people. Now, it wasn't always because they'd lived through the war or whatever, but I think it was more that they didn't have an expectation that their life was going to go according to their plan. They just kind of were more open to the idea that these kind of things happen and you just have to deal with it. Now, I've heard people arguing, and I see it on Twitter sometimes, that we really we shouldn't be bothered about resilience in our children because what we should be concentrating on is making the world a nicer place so that they wouldn't be challenged. You know, if we could all just be nicer to one another, then somehow we wouldn't need resilience. And I'm sorry, I just don't agree with that. The world is not that place. I mean, maybe we can eliminate wars and all the rest of it, but we're not going to eliminate sorrow, loss, adversities, uh, failures, and these things. It's the nature of life. And the other thing which really, really bothers me as an individual is that our children and grandchildren are going to have to deal with climate change. So they are going to have to be more resilient, I would say, than I've had to be 
in, in my lifetime. So I think it's an incredibly important topic. So let me start saying you know, something here. I'm, I'm going to make a, an analogy here with physical health because we know that people have got natural resilience, but maybe it's a bit like your immune system. You know, we know that people have got an immune system, but what people are arguing now is that our, we are compromising our immune system through being too hygienic. And there's lots of arguments that people are advancing, which says because we are bringing our children up in too clean an environment, you know, so we don't see a lot of that anymore, mm-hmm. too clean an environment, their immune system is not being tested by bugs. It's not being challenged. It's not being kind of forced into action. So, yes, you've got an immune system, but it's not as effective as it used to be. Um, And some people are also arguing that if you look at peanut allergies, for example, that it's because there was a period there where children were not exposed to peanuts that actually a number of them have become allergic to it, whereas if they had just been given peanuts, there wouldn't have been a problem. So there's something about exposure. And I'm using this because I think that there's a similarity with resilience, which we can think about as our psychological immune system. That yes, we have it, but it's also got to be jolted into action some amount of the time. You have to, you know, you have to get certain adversities in your life for you to develop your resilience and for you to feel resilient. That's my kind of basic hypothesis here. So. Um, I kind of started to get into this many years ago when I wrote The Scots Crisis of Confidence. I told you I wasn't a psychologist, but I did become a trainer. And I was doing a lot of personal development training. I was very aware of confidence, and I ended up writing The Scots Crisis of Confidence. I was given some money to set up the centre and run events. And one of the first events, in fact, this was actually prior to the centre, I ran an event called Towards Confidence Scotland, and asked Professor Martin Seligman who's one of the world's most distinguished psychologists, to speak at that event. And that's him and I at a positive psychology conference a few years later. But when he came to Glasgow on this occasion, he said to me, and it was very, very memorable, he said, look, it's great what you're doing in confidence, but be very, very careful. Don't go down the self-esteem route because it's toxic. And he's not been the only American psychologist who's, who told us that. We then went on and we had Carol Dweck, we had lots of American psychologists came and do, did events for us, and they all said very sim- similar things. Now, what worried me about that was that the centre that I set up actually was having quite a lot, not, not some <coughs> influence, but a lot of people were interested in what we were doing. And it was round about the time of the Curriculum for Excellence being developed, and confident individuals was at the core of that. And I thought, well, maybe Seligman's right. You've got to be very careful with this. So I spent quite a lot of time reading up on what happened in America. Why was Seligman saying that to me? Um, I really felt I had to understand that. And so I read really quite a lot on what happened in America, and I could understand completely why Seligman was saying that, that really there was an issue. And basically what happened in America, very quickly, because I think we have to understand this. I think it's a really important lesson. Uh, Basically what happened in America 
is that way back in the 70s and 80s, people started to believe, psychologists particular, that somehow everything about children's lives and you know, adults' lives as well would improve if they just felt better about themselves. That self-esteem was this incredible panacea. There wasn't any great evidence for that, but they thought, oh, intuitively we know it's the case, let's just build self-esteem. And so what people started to do, particularly schools, this was very much school-driven, was they started to say, you know, our main objective is to build the self-esteem of our students. And so what they did was they started to uh, do things like over-the-top praise for not very much. In other words, they saw their objective as to make these kids feel good about themselves. That was the number one thing that they should be doing. Um, because the belief was that somehow, if you could do that further down the line, kids would learn. Okay? Let me just go through it and then I'll tell you what the problem with this is. Not giving any critical feedback because that would then damage their self-esteem. Um, encouraging young people to focus too much on him or herself and has there, there's a wee kind of you know, value judgment there, it was too much, but there was an awful lot of I'm special type of activities. Restricting competition so that, you know, we're not going to have prizes here because some people are going to feel bad about themselves. You can see how that follows from that kind of activity. Um, giving prizes or recognition regardless of what kids were doing. Um, and restricting opportunities to fail. That was the kind of package. And the belief was that would buoy up these kids' self-esteem and that would mean they would learn. Now, the fly in the ointment here was there was never any evidence to support the idea that high self-esteem was linked to academic success. In fact, there was a, there's an American psychologist called Roy Beimeister who thought it was a great pity that they didn't have the evidence, and he decided he would find the evidence to support the self-esteem movement, and he ended up saying it was the biggest disappointment of his professional life. Because not only could he not support the idea that self-esteem is a panacea uh, and linked to all these good things for children, he actually started to believe that high self-esteem was a bigger social problem than low self-esteem. Because people with low self-esteem tend to damage themselves, whereas people with high self-esteem can often be bullies, can be prejudiced, and actually that can be quite negative. So this was what was happening in America. There was a lot of this going on. Uh, parents as well felt that their priority as a parent should be to boost their kids' self-esteem. Um, very similar research was done, as Baumeister did, in, in the UK by a guy called Nicholas Emler, and he came to the same conclusion, that actually self-esteem boosting was not a positive thing to do, um, and actually it was a quite a complicated thing. So, to some extent, um, the way that I see it is, it doesn't mean that self-esteem doesn't matter. You know, it, it, it's probably nicer for you as an individual if when you go into your head and you think about yourself, you have a positive sense of yourself rather than a negative one. I think you can see that. So it is of some value. And actually there is some evidence to suggest that 
you know, it, it can lead to positive feelings, it can help counteract depression. You know, there are some positives associated with it. It's just not as extensive as people think. Um, but I think the way to think about this is self-esteem is just one thing amongst many things that are important for people. A sense of meaning and purpose, for example. Um, social relationships, um, empathy, you know, meaning. There, there's all sorts of things that are important. Self-esteem is just part of that. It shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. And the other thing is, it is much better if we, we believe that we should be boosting self-esteem or whatever by doing it naturally rather than artificially. Because this was an artificial way to boost self-esteem. And what's interesting about the research that's been done in self-esteem is it suggests that 30% of it is just how you were born, it's congenitals, some people just have more self-esteem than others. Um, and then the other comes from being loved by your parents. A lot of this is about unqualified love and affection that makes you feel good about yourself because you were loved. That, that's what an awful lot of self-esteem comes from. And I know Emler felt this isn't about schools, this is about parents. Um, this is, I'm, I'm just going to go through this quite quickly, and I, I, and I wish I hadn't put this in because I don't really like the snowflake stuff. I think it's pejorative and I don't really like it. Um, but basically... During the period, and for quite a time afterwards, and I don't know what's happening now, where self-esteem held sway in American schools, American e uh, educational academic standards plummeted. America has got some of the worst academic um, you know, performances in, in the world, actually, in, in the Western world, even though they spend quite a lot of money on it. You know, so if you ask American kids... If, um, if they're good at maths, they will say yes. You, ask, you give them a maths puzzle and they can't do it. Whereas the opposite is true for Korean students. Okay, so what Seligman said about this is that he predicted that this would lead to a decline in academic standards. For one simple reason is that people were paying too much attention to how children were feeling in the moment and they were paying too much attention to whether the child was feeling frustrated. And what he said is, frustration is an inherent part of learning. You're not going to learn anything that's worth learning if you don't get frustrated some of the time. So if you're really focused on how that child's feeling and you don't want it to feel frustrated, you don't want it to feel bad, you, the temptation then is to give it easier things to do to keep up how it feels about himself, him or herself. Okay, the other thing that Seligman said, and I'm going to move on quickly from this in a minute, is that self, the, the, the whole self-esteem movement was focusing too much on how the individual child was feeling and that that actually could encourage depression because, and he's an expert on depression, he said one of the main counterweights to depression is a sense of meaning and purpose. And by definition... A sense of meaning and purpose is about we rather than I. But what parents were doing in America, whether they're doing it here or not to the same degree, was encouraging children to believe that the be-all and end-all in life was how they felt. And he said, that is not a good message. Because that will encourage children to be far too self-focused 
and actually can set them up for depression. There was also an issue about narcissism, um, and you know, narcissism is not a positive characteristic, and a lot of people were saying, you're not encouraging self-esteem, you're encouraging narcissism, and actually, they've been right in the sense that there is now quantitative data in America which shows that narcissism has been on the increase. It might not just be as a result of this, it could be as a result of advertising, marketing, all range of things, but I think this has played its part in that. Okay, let's get on to Scotland then. Meanwhile, back in Scotland. I then wrote a book called Creating Confidence, a handbook for professionals working with young people, because I was so alarmed by a lot of that. I didn't want us to go down that route. And so I quite quickly wrote this book, and it, it sold well. We sold over 2,000 copies of it. Um, and I did a lot of talk uh, to, 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 a lot of talks to teachers at the time. And what they said to me, and this surprised me, is they said, that's the road we are on. We are 80% down that road. And I couldn't really understand where the pressure was coming from. Because the whole self-esteem thing had never been a big issue for schools in Scotland, the way that it had been in America, where it was the mission of schools to do this. So where was the pressure coming from? I never really quite understood that. I just thought it might be because we share a media, it's part of the zeitgeist and so on, and I think there's an element of that. But it was only when I then got on to the book that I've written recently called Hiding in Plain Sight, where I'm looking at adverse childhood experiences, and I'm not going to start talking about that. We can talk about that in the, the break, not the break, but the question and answer if you want, because it will take me too long. But it did make me think about child rearing in Scotland historically, and really faced up to some of the things I'm about to, to, to cover with you, about actually how Scotland was not a good place to grow up as a child. It was really quite a cruel environment in lots of ways. Uh, and I'll explain why I'm saying that in a minute. So when we then published another book, um, this was just last year, called The Golden Mean. Um, and The Golden Mean is, is really an idea, not just of balance, but it's about how things kind of interact and, and modulate one another. And the key idea in this is really about how kids need both support and challenge. That if you only give them support, it's enervating. It, 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 it's, it's not great for them. It's boring. I mean, you actually are, are you're, um, depriving children of motivation if you actually just support and you don't challenge. And it also is counterproductive from a resilience point of view. But only doing challenge is cruel. You know, kids need support. So there's a way in which we need a balance between the two. But in my article, because this is an edited collection, in my article, I look at parenting in Scotland. Because what I began to see was that actually parents had started to move from one old style of parenting to a new style of parenting which wasn't necessarily that brilliant either. Now, in what I'm going to say about this is anything that I say, I could have done myself as a parent. And I'm not into blame, right? I'm into analysis. Um, but I do think that there is something happened at kind of generational level in Scotland 
that wasn't related to the American stuff. It was our stuff. But it led us to a very similar place as where they got to in America. Now, I had a very, very miserable childhood in the 1950s. And so when my child was born um, in the 80s, I can remember thinking, I never want him to cry. I want him to have this perfect childhood where he's always happy. I mean, I soon get disabused of that. But I remember that being my aspiration. I didn't want my child to ever experience pain. Um, and when I was an assertiveness trainer, and I did that for many, many years, one of the exercises we often got people to reflect on their own childhood. And I heard countless Scots telling me that they had really quite authoritarian parents who never particularly told them that they loved them or complimented them or whatever. And they said, I am not going to be like that with my children. I am going to be completely different. I'm going to shower them with affection. I'm going to tell them I love them all the time. Um, and no teacher is going to treat them the way I was treated at school. Um, because it was hellish. Um, so there was a lot of that kind of feeling of people very consciously saying, I am going to do it differently. Right? Um, now, the, the issue for me is that until the 80s, there was a lot of authoritarianism in Scotland towards kids. Right? So a lot of smacking, and there's still a reasonable amount of smacking going on in Scotland. I, I, growing up in Scotland, um, a study recently showed that 22% of Scottish kids up to the age of eight are still smacked. I think that's quite high myself, 22%. Um, and there's quite a hoo-ha at the moment about the smacking ban that's proposed. And all I want to say to that is, 50 countries in the world have banned smacking. It's not that, um, it's not that outre an idea, if you know what I mean. Most, lots of countries are not smacking. But it's really the belt that I want to talk about. Because when I wrote the Scots Crisis of Confidence and I was arguing that, um, that Making mistakes was a big part. The fear of making mistakes was a big part of, of an issue for, for Scots, and I thought was related to the kind of lack of confidence issue for a lot of Scots. What I didn't realise is that our educational experiences, for my generation anyway and earlier, um, at school played a huge part in that. Because I, I, mean, I, had, I was terrified of the idea of getting the belt, and I did get the belt on a few occasions, but I just thought all countries belted. I, I did not know that we were an outlier when it came to the belt. A total outlier. Um, the, if you look, and, and, I, and I, I talk about this in Hiding in Plain Sight, the first country to abolish corporal punishment in schools was Poland, and it did it in 1783. Not that, is that not remarkable? Russia banned corporal punishment in 1919. 
France at the end of the 19th century. All these European countries, it was Anglo-American countries that were using corporal punishment mainly. And I think because of that, we thought that it was more widespread than it actually was. And they're still using the, the bell or corporal punishment in southern states of America. And I think there's one Australian state as well. Now, when it comes to the difference between Scotland and England, we know that the English fee-paying sector use corporal punishment a lot, caning and you know all sorts of things of that kind. But actually, when it comes to state schools in England, it was very variable right around the country. And it, they do not seem, in the main, to have belted the way or used corporal punishment the way that Scotland did. Right? So Scotland was, that's what I'm saying, it was an outlier. Our rates were much higher. The other thing is, we were belting infants. We were belting five-year-old girls for wetting the floor, not knowing a prayer, um, talking in class, behaving like a child. That's what Scotland was doing. And the other thing that Scotland was doing was Scotland was belting for academic mistakes. Even though there was a, an edict that said they shouldn't use it in that way, everyone will recount how their school since not all teachers did, but the vast majority of teachers did, it was being used to belt people for spelling mistakes, etc., etc. So that's what I mean by Scotland was really quite an authoritarian country when it came to children. Right? And the belt was abolished, and I have to keep checking this because I can't believe, I'm going to tell you, in 1987. 1987. Now, some local authorities had abolished it by then, or they weren't belting girls, or the, you know, whatever. But um, it was 1987, and it only happened as a result of the European Court of Human Rights. Two Scottish mothers appealed to them, and it wasn't about children's rights. It was about the right of the parents to decide whether their child was going to be belted or not. And the thank heaven for the European Court of Human Rights, they said uh, the schools have to check with the parents first um, before they, they, they hit the children. And that just wasn't practical, so it had to be abolished. And England abolished it as well, uh, round about the same time. But I just think it's, as I say, I have to keep going. I, no, I can't, it must be a mistake. No, it must be 78, can't be 87, it is. And Sue Palmer might want to say, but Sue Palmer's sitting here, and she says that when you went to Murray House, there was a, there was a room upstairs, wasn't there? Top floor of Charterslam. Yes. was where they got taught to use the bell. Got taught now, to use the bell. I, I was 1970, and they told me I was the first year uh -huh. they weren't showing the patterns. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I think this is very significant, and we've never had a debate about this in Scotland. You know, it just got abolished. Uh, and actually, the women that were instrumental in this were hounded. Uh, they were given a really hard time, and one died a couple of years after the, the abolition. I mean, it, it's, it's dreadful. I think this is Scotland's shame. But this is what I mean by we had really quite an authoritarian, draconian attitude towards children. The fact that that was going on... One of the things I should say is data from the 1970s showed that corporal punishment was used three times more in Scottish approved schools um, than it was in England. Three times more. Anyway, so 
So, let me go on from that to talk then about parenting styles. And there's a, an American woman, Diana Baumrind, she came up with some kind of definitions of, of different ways, and this has been added to a wee bit, but she talks about it in terms of cold or warm, soft or firm. And you can combine that so that you get four styles. She came up with three, but it's been added to. So the Scottish style was cold and firm. I mean, I'm not saying that there weren't people who weren't like that, but that was the norm. The norm was, do what I tell you, and if you don't, you'll get a clout, right? I mean, that generally, it was a lot of that, and don't you dare talk back, and who do you think you are, and all that. You know, there was a lot, there was an awful lot of that. Um, and that is really not good for kids. There's a lot of research that says it's really not good for kids. It kills creativity, it's bad for your confidence, it, you know... It's just not very. It's not a very good way to be brought up, um, because it's squashing you, in many ways, and it's it's not child friendly. Um, but I think then what has happened is people not wanting to do that and knowing there was a better way, they've just gone to the opposite extreme. So they've gone to warm, soft. You know, they've gone to indulgent and permissive, right? In other, and, and that is better. There's, there's no doubt it's better. It's more, it's more child focused. It's 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 taking the, the kids, you know, interests and needs to heart. It's putting it at the centre. But there's no clear rules and boundaries. It's really saying the child is at the centre of here, and somehow you're their servant, mm -hmm. rather than they're fitting in to the world that you've created, if, if you know what I mean. It, it, it's more like that. Just the others here, cold and soft is neglectful. That is terrible for children. You can do what you like because I don't care. You know, that, that would be neglectful. Um, and authoritative is warm and firm. Now, there have been lots and lots of papers. In fact, the, one of the papers I read, which was a, a meta-analysis, was drawing on 131 papers that had been done worldwide on academic achievement and parenting styles. And the authoritative style comes out time and time again as being the, 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 the style that is good for children's academic success, but it's also good, bet, much better for kids emotionally because it's actually better to have clear rules and boundaries to know where you are. You know, if you even think about Seligman saying, you know, having a big eye and a, and a, and a small wee is not good for kids, it's not really good for kids for them to think that they're the centre of the universe and they should just get what they like. But the other thing, and I, I can't remember whether I'm going to be saying this um, later, is that you have to bear in mind that children now are the prey of, of people who are involved in advertising and marketing. You know, there might have been a time where you could say children know what's best for them, but I don't think that time is, is true anymore because children are so, um, you know, are, are so at the mercy of adverts and media and so on that, you know, they would sit for hours watching um, programmes or want to eat certain food or not go to bed or whatever. I just don't think you can say children know what's best for them. Um, so I think there is a, there's, a, there's a huge issue here. 
that, that I think that this is what has happened, that the norm now is this warm, soft, indulgent parenting. <coughs> now, I'm not saying that the others are, aren't there as well, but I don't think authoritative has become the norm the way that it maybe is in other countries like, like Sweden, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. So I think the issue here for me is it wasn't about building self-esteem. It's, a, it's about a fear of negative experiences and wanting to avoid adversities at all costs, putting the child and the child's feelings at the centre. I think that's what's going on here. Um, and I think some of that is about parents' own fear over negative feelings and not knowing how to deal with that. Does that sound right to you? Can I just, you know, I, I think that that's part of the issue. Um, so I, I, when I did a lot of work with schools, you know, would, would pick up on some of this from teachers. And as I say, I want you to remember, I could be this mother, right? I, I'm, so I'm not saying this in a way that is critical. I mean, I kind of eventually worked out some of this stuff, but, um, you know, I could have been. On one occasion, I phoned my son's tutor when he was at university, right? Which I think is a terrible thing to do, and I can't believe I did it. So, you know, that's how interviewing I could have been as a mother. Um, but what teachers will say is, um, in fact, I can get a cheer for saying this, that they could have a, a parent phoning up saying, my son didn't get the lead part in the pantomime, and you're being cruel to him. In fact, one said that a mother phoned up and said, my daughter didn't get, the lead, get to become Mary in the nativity play, and she was last year. And she's really upset, which I think is extraordinary given the fact that, you know, if she got it last year, she shouldn't get it this year. A director of education told me, and this is quite a challenging one, a director of education told me that she was being hounded by a parent because his daughter hadn't been invited to a birthday party. And as a director of education, she should be sorting that out because his daughter was very upset. Right? Now, on that, and I can understand, I'm sure his daughter, if she was the only girl in the class that wasn't invited, that would have been painful for her. And I'm going to come to this in a minute, but she has to think to some extent, why was she not invited? Is it something to do with her behavior? Just possibly, just saying it might be. And that's something that she has to address. Right? That's quite a challenging one. But, right, and another one is a, a mother saying to me once, after I did a talk about this, and she said, would you not agree with me, it's terrible. My husband died last year, and my daughter's primary teacher is teaching the class how to spell father. That's cruel, right? Now, this is what I mean by a hypersensitivity towards anything that's emotionally challenging for children. <coughs> And if it, that is what is happening, you can see how it's just chipping away at resilience. Because, you know, that child can't go through life not hearing the word father, and actually she'll come to terms with it. She has to come to terms with it. It's the nature of life. Um, so if I go on now to... Sorry, look at... Have a drink. 
um, our key messages on resilience. And I've got this in handout for you. And, and some of this has been compiled from the Bounce Back program, which we particularly promoted and like it. But there are certain things that I think that parents and teachers can help with, because a lot of this is about the messages that we're communicating. So it's remembering that bad feelings don't last. Have a purpose. And that's quite a challenge one and galvanize us to do differently. So if you've failed something, it's the bad feeling of having failed that is likely to motivate you to do work so you don't fail next time. Right? You know, so if you fall out and you feel bad about something, that's why you're likely to make amends. Do you see what I mean? So bad feelings are, are an indicator that you should pay attention to something. So they can actually have a purpose and it is not a good thing to shy away from all the time and not try and learn that lesson and change your behaviour. Trying to normalise young people's setbacks. Help them to see that these setbacks are not abnormal. That's life. That's what life is like. It's a series of setbacks to some extent. Um, and helping them to see that problems can be solved. Right? Because you've got a problem, it doesn't mean to say that you can't solve it. Help them work out what these steps could be. Encouraging them to keep it in perspective. It's only this subject. It's only you know their academic work, but they're very popular. They're good at sport. There's all sorts of things. It's about getting things in perspective. These are the essence of optimistic thinking, by the way. Um, remembering the value of humour. You know, it can actually be really useful. Not laughing at people, but sometimes encouraging people to take a kind of light, humorous attitude towards things can be helpful. Um, it's a big one for me, encouraging young people to accept responsibility when things go wrong. Now, this is a challenge because I think that in general, we don't do that even as adults. There, there tends to be a blaming other people, the teacher, other kids, my, you know, it's all these other kids that did this, it's not my child. Um, I remember a teacher saying that, that she had a wee boy that was spitting in, in the playground. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't just like one or two incidents, it was happening all the time. So they called the mother in and said, look, you know, we think they have to address this. They, they, they weren't making a big deal out of it. They just said, you know, you, I think you need to know, we need to address it. And uh, the mother got really angry with them and said it was the school's fault because he wasn't entertained in the playground enough. <laughs> That's an example of not taking responsibility. Now, you know, as someone who's been very interested in personal development, I don't see how you can learn if you don't take responsibility. If, if you can't say, well, I shouldn't have done that, or by me doing that, that happened, you know, and so maybe in the future I should do something differently... That's how you learn. If, you, if you're encouraged to say, well, it wasn't my fault, it was them, you don't learn. You don't develop. And so getting young people to accept responsibility, it was one of the key things in Bounce Back, which I liked, that if anything went wrong, um, you got the kids to think of it in terms of circumstances, other people, but themselves, and they always had to put themselves in the frame, even if it was to say, I should have thought that that might have happened. 
So it was just a kind of lesson for, for thinking. And of course, this is a huge change that's taken place in the last 30 years. My generation, if you went home and you said you got the bell or something happened, it was always believed that you had done something. You know, that you were part of it in some way. Whereas now, it's much more likely that a parent will believe that their child did nothing wrong and it's other people's fault. I'm not saying it's absolutely, but I think that that is something that tends to have happened more. And I don't know whether that is an element of a kind of self-esteem obsessed of science. You know, if you feel bad about yourself, you feel bad about your child, you have to pass it on to someone else. I don't know the reason for that. Um... When reading stories or discussing events, point out how people manage to overcome their difficulties. And that's a big part of the Bounce Back program. And it's an easy thing to do if you've got young children and you're reading stories. You know, select stories where there's adversities and challenge. Point that out. Oh, look, Rabbit had a really hard time here, but, you know, X, Y, and Z happened, and there you go at the end. He or she's quite happy. You know, they've resolved it. You know, make it a lesson in life to point out about adversities. Um, Remember that learning is often frustrating and encouraging young people to persist and believe they can get there, providing support, helping them to see that there are people who care about them and can give them help and advice when needed, and obviously creating a positive environment. These are the kind of things that we think are helpful in encouraging resilience in in young people. And as I say, I've got it on a handout for, for you if you're interested.